now and then I get requests for studies in the book of Revelation. Um, I've gotten a lot more of that uh, kind of uh, request in the last few months than I have over the last few years. I, I guess it's understandable in the face of all the things that uh, are happening in the world. But uh, it's always a, a daunting request because there's so much that needs to be understood in the background before we can really understand the book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of end-time events, given to John to show to us things that will shortly come to pass. That in itself makes it of the utmost importance, even beyond its relation to end times questions. But every time I've ever attempted to tackle the book, I have found myself having to reduce it down to a very limited list of important subtopics. The letters to the seven churches are a study all their own with layers of possibility of uh, focus. Then there are various patterns of seven, the seven seals, the seven churches, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. This leads to more infamous topics like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the antichrist, the mark of the beast, the horrible portents, and of course the great massive earthquake. Then most of all, there is the return of the king, the millennial kingdom, the final judgment, and hell and heaven. I haven't even done this list proper uh, focus, so uh, even my attempt to list the subtitles are, are inadequate. Uh, what I've just mentioned here can take a year uh, of each study, each topic. The most comprehensive commentary in my possession is well over a thousand pages, and it states in its introduction that, quote, many of the topics addressed here cannot be adequately examined in this context, but would require at least an entire volume for each topic. <laughs> so how is that helpful? Well, in order to approach even a mere basic understanding of the book of Revelation, which is not our topic, by the way, in this hour, but this is just an introductory point I want to make. But in order to approach even a basic understanding, the first thing necessary would be to gain a, a basic understanding of Hebraic foundations. Uh, since it, it's a Hebrew writing written in Greek, but thinking in Hebrew. Uh, that would demand at least an introductory understanding of the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis, Exodus, especially with reference to the battle of the gods of Egypt, which symbolizes the world system. Then you need to understand the tabernacle, and then you need to understand the feasts of the Lord, followed by a fairly comprehensive understanding of the prophets, major and minor. And please remember, minor prophets don't mean they're less important. They just mean the books are shorter. That's all. Major prophets don't mean they're more important. It just means they're longer. That's all. So you need to <laughs> understand the whole Old Covenant. Then we might be ready, once we've done that, to begin to tackle chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation. And that would be only an overview at best. So if I had to boil down to a single message what Revelation is about, what would it be? It's not wrong to seek to boil it down to a memorable single statement so long as we are doing it in order to obey 
and not in order to turn the Word of God into a convenient soundbite. The Torah was boiled down by the prophet Micah to the words, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. And then later, Habakkuk boiled it down even more to the statement that we Protestants tend to know so well from Habakkuk 2, 4. So then the just shall live by faith, or a more proper translation, by his faithfulness the just one shall live. For the point is not some abstract idea of mental assent to a set of doctrines. The point of the Torah is faithful, loving relationship to a living uh, God who, who is present to us. Paul does the same thing with the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, verse 38, what is the greatest commandment? He, he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Then Jesus expands on that by adding, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He not only adds that that secondary statement, but decrees that it is equal to the first part of it. It's the same same thing. So in Galatians 5, verse 14, Paul sums up the entire Torah by stating that it is fulfilled in loving your neighbor. He actually takes the second part Jesus added to the first part, which was the primary commandment, and makes the second part as uh, not only equal to the first part, but actually leaves off the first part and quotes only the second part. The idea being, of course, that if you do love God, you will manifest that love in real action through the day-by-day encounters you have with people, thus fulfilling all the law. If you love people, you fulfill the law. So we have biblical precedent to try to sum up in some memorable way the entire message of Revelation. I'm going to try to, to do that here. <laughs> I'm a bit wary of trying to do it, but I'm equally wary of us all becoming so overwhelmed with that intimidating list of prerequisites that I mentioned uh, that it would leave us just not reading anything, not understanding anything. So it seems it would be much better to try to find the one core message and hold to it while we then seek to unpack all the rest of the meaning that we can. And the best I can come come up with uh, so far, and that may change from moment to moment, but the best I can come up with so far would be something like love not the world in order to be able to love the world. Or you might say it another way, turn from idols and serve the living God. Or maybe the exact same thing could be stated by quoting, come out from among them and be separate. Now, you'll recognize all three of these that I've quoted are from the New Testament. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world is from John, who also finishes his first letter with the startling command, little children, keep yourselves from idols, which we'll talk about more later. The next is from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Then finally, the third quote is from uh, Revelation itself, 
chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out from among her, my people, so that you do not partake of her sins and you don't receive uh, of her plagues. For her sins have reached heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, I believe these verses sum up the ultimate warning of Revelation and, more importantly, the ultimate invitation. Now, it's sadly typical of us to merely focus on the warning as if the only thing God's interested in is giving ominous, impending warnings of terrible judgments that are coming. No, it is the refusal of the invitation that makes the warning even necessary. The invitation is far more important than the warning. Because if you respond to the invitation, the warning is not necessary. The invitation is 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. I will dwell in them and walk in them and be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean, and I will receive you and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The great emphasis should never be on the dire warnings, but on the great invitation. Yet, foolish, world-seduced people seem to need the warning to even notice the invitation. As in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils, the Lord says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and then they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't even hold water and focused on the broken cisterns. Our current Western Christian culture is in constant danger of this same self-deception. God's cry through Jeremiah is that the people were so devoid of sensitivity to God's heart that they no longer even knew how to blush when they sinned. There was no shame over the things that would have caused a healthy people to cry out in grief over evil. See Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, chapter 8, verse 12. They had lost their ability to even care if a thing was evil or not, and so obviously could not feel proper grief any longer over the things that broke God's heart. Jeremiah 2.35 this is as contemporary and relevant for us as you can get. A proper understanding of the times of Jeremiah would reveal a people who carried on their daily lives in the context of adherence to their Hebraic heritage while adding whatever pagan idolatry they might be seduced by and all the while saying, we have not sinned, we're good Jews. Jeremiah's grief, which earned him the title of the weeping prophet, was that nothing he said or did seemed to make any difference to the people as they went first to the temple to worship Yahweh with their traditions in place, then immediately went to the groves to worship Baal with their hearts and souls, minds and bodies. The inevitable judgment that came is a prophetic preview of the current spiritual battle we are now in. In Hebrew, there's a direct link between the word poison and the word for wrath. Hence the symbol of the cup of wrath used over and over in Scripture. Or the cup Jesus asked to be spared of in the garden. If a people continually ingest poison, 
if they continue to mix poison into the good, thus adulterating the good and making it also poison. To mix the evil with the good produces poison, and and this leaves only one result, the wrath of God, which comes to put right that which has been poisoned. Going back to Paul's letter in 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, chapter nine, uh, chapter one, verse nine and ten. You show what a great welcome you gave us, and how you turned to God, away from idols, in order to serve the true and living God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who has delivered us from the coming wrath. You see, there's a. You don't see this in English, but there's a direct relationship in the Hebraic mind between being purged from a mixture of idolatry and and uh, uh, seemingly good things with the idolatry mixed in with it, ruining all of it. There's a direct relationship to turning from that and being delivered from coming wrath. The entire history of Israel is one of breaking covenant by worshiping of idols. Then judgment comes, and that brings finally a restoration of a remnant that is faithful. This crescendos historically into a final scenario in which there emerges basically two options. The church, who is the bride, and the world, who is the harlot. The bride is espoused as a chaste virgin to her uh, husband, the world is a whore. So the basic story of Revelation and the close of the age is to be either a bride of Christ or a servant of the harlot. John sets out first in his pastoral letter and also in Revelation a clear choice between two. It's either light or dark. It's either love or hate. It's either Christ or Antichrist. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no gray, murky area. In his pastoral letters, he makes several important references to the world, not the least of which, quote, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us, 1 John 2.15. Yet this is the same writer who also wrote, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, John 3.16. It would be far too demanding to try here to deal with every aspect of the nuances of the word world. But we can settle with this one basic fact, that God created the universe, the entire cosmos, and called it good in Genesis 1. Yet the fall and the invasion of supernatural evil into the world desecrated it. So now, 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. Satan has become the god, little g, of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. And here, a different word is used for world, aeon, referring to the current age we live in. Now, it might help to understand the difference between cosmos and aeon. Uh, this is maybe overly simplistic, but I think it'll help at least get you get you started thinking about it. Uh, that the cosmos is the entire system of the universe. 
the aeon is the age in which this present system is allowed to operate. So when the Bible talks about the end of the world, it's never talking about necessarily the end of the universe, but the end of the present system and the age in which that system has been allowed to operate. So John says in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Jesus uh, says in uh, John 5 and John 16 that we overcome the world by our faith. 1 John 5, 4, we overcome the world by our faith. And then John 16, 33, These things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Well, I thought the world was good. Not the world system was created good, but then it fell. There's an open and undeniable warfare now going on in the world. Am I speaking here of a, of a duality? Well, obviously the Bible doesn't support the idea that there has always been a battle going on between light and darkness. That's, that's a pagan idea, mostly from uh, uh, Zarathustra. And the, the idea that uh, Ahura Mazda is the good God and he's been in eternal fight battle with uh, his evil opposite counterpart. And they're just constantly in battle with each other. And the idea emerges out of that that you need dark and light and fighting with each other to produce whatever's next. That it takes darkness and light to produce the good. Now, that false idea has crept into some Christian theologians. Now, good, solid-thinking Jews and Christians know better than to believe that war is between two equals who are in opposition to each other. We know that darkness is not eternal. Light is eternal because God is light. But darkness in opposition to light is not eternal. There was a beginning, and there was a beginner. He created nothing evil, Yet, there does exist a secondary evil force in the universe that is in constant battle against God. God did not create this force to be evil, so therefore this force became evil by its own willful choice. Now, those who are hyper-concerned to guard God's sovereignty against any suggestion that there might be opposition to God inadvertently end up teaching that evil must have been somehow in God's plan or it wouldn't exist. Now, in the sense that God knows everything and God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, uh, that, that statement would be true only to the degree of God allowing it to happen because God knows what he's going to do about it once it's happened. But to say that God overtly predestined it and planned it, I think, is a blasphemous idea. Evil is somehow, in this false thinking, the left hand of God, some have called it, or God's necessary shadow, others have called it. In other words, to protect God's sovereignty, certain teachers have happily given up his purity and goodness and said, well, we're doing this to protect God's holiness. How this is supposed to be honoring to God's holiness or his divine majesty is hard to understand. But I think it's hard to understand only because it is incoherent and wrong. 
If evil was in God's plan, it would only be in order for God to be able to destroy it out of the universe forever. And evil, by its very nature, is not a created thing as much as it is the negation of creation, the opposition of God's order. So God's sovereignty is upheld far better and more coherently by stating that God allowed evil to take its place in the cosmos, even establish itself by force as a primary governing power among human beings. Obviously, I'm speaking of by force uh, with reference to humans, not with reference to God. Uh, evil will be destroyed out of the universe by the foolishness of God, which is wiser than evil, and by the weakness of God, which is stronger than evil. Free will will be protected by God, since it is the only way love can truly exist in, on the human level. Evil will be ultimately and utterly destroyed. God will be ultimately uh, exalted as victor over all his enemies, yet without in any way behaving like his evil enemies. And all this will be under the guidance of divine providence, which is properly acknowledged and honored, while not in any way impugning God's character by attributing to God the existence of evil or cooperation with evil. So as disturbing as it may be to some nervous guardians of God's sovereignty when reading the New Testament, it is crystal clear that there are two forces meeting and they have nothing in common with each other. No. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus seem to say to the devil, I know you are really just the shadow side of my Father in me, but for show's sake, let's pretend we're at war. I don't think so. No, there's a provisional realm of evil existing for a time, this present age, in which evil is allowed to hit its biggest shots against God's created order. What that entails is obviously beyond any of us to fully understand, but the one thing we can know is that there are two realms which are not equal and which are in opposition, and God absolutely hates the evil. And in God is no evil, and in him is no darkness at all. God intends those who are his to make a clear cut with evil. Throughout Scripture, but especially in John's writing, the word world is used first with reference to the beauty and order of the intended creation, as in John twelve forty seven. 47. Uh, I... Uh, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Paul says in Romans 1 that even in its fallen condition, the created order of the world gives testimony to the glory and majesty of God. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that have been created, even his eternal power and Godhead. Yet when God enters the world... In the Incarnation, he comes to declare war on the occupying evil force that has taken the world. John 1.10 He was in the world, and the world was created by him, and the world knew him not. He says that neither he nor his kingdom are of this world. John 8.23, John 17.14, John 16.8 
This world hates him and all those he delivers out of the world. John 15, verses 18 through 19. He tells his apostles that, quote, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. Then he prays that we will be in the world, but not of the world, in John 17. David Bentley Hart says, The cosmos, in the sense of the world, is an empire of cruelty, ignorance, and spiritual desolation. It is death working in all things, the power to dominate or slay, but not to make new. It is this present evil world, as Paul calls it in Galatians 1.4, and to which Paul says we must never allow ourselves to be conformed in Romans 12, verse 2. The New Testament reveals a fallen world ruled over by dark angelic powers who are in mutiny against the Most High, who allows them their temporary place only in so that he may bring them to the place where they will be destroyed and vanquished out of the universe forever. God is never surprised by or overcome by evil. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwells in it. Acknowledging the truth that there is a rebellious supernatural evil power in the universe that is in opposition to God does nothing to lessen the reality of God's ability to overrule them or to overthrow them. But God is not seemingly interested in power displays that enforce his will uh, by force. He operates in line with his promises, even promises to his enemies. Psalm 115, verse 16 says, The earth he has given to the sons of men. And when men then turned and willfully aligned themselves with dark angels, the fruit of that alignment is the horror story of mankind's history. This present evil age has been handed over by by man into the hands of evil, and God did not step in and overrule that choice and has continued to uh, cooperate with it and allow it in keeping with his own integrity. Uh, This present evil age is dominated by thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, according to Colossians 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, Ephesians 1, verses 21, uh, Ephesians 3, 10, Ephesians 6, 12, and by the elemental spirits of the world, Galatians 4, 3, and by the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2, who cannot separate us from the love of God, Romans 8, verse 38, but they still hinder, attack, and battle against us, Ephesians 6, 12. So Jesus calls the devil the prince of this world, John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11. Paul calls him the God, little g, of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And John sums up the gravity of this state of affairs by saying, as we've already previously quoted, that the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one, 1 John five nineteen. Now, when taken together, and we have not exhausted all the verses on this subject, it paints a picture of a spiritual war where toleration of the enemy's influence is a form of collaboration with the enemy on our part. 
if we tolerate the enemy's influence, we are inadvertently collaborating with the enemy. That's a very serious breach of the protective walls of covenant faith. Casual interactions with aspects of demonic culture that are clearly in the enemy's camp should be taken as seriously as Scripture takes it. So John closes his pastoral letter with an abrupt statement. After all he's written in all five chapters about the love of God and the goodness of God and the keeping power of God, he closes with this statement. Little children, keep yourselves away from idols. For John, loving not the world seems to be summed up in refusing to bow to any idols. If that is true, then we need to understand what idolatry is all about. Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 says, Those who give themselves to lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Lying vanities are empty falsehoods, and this is a common term used in Hebrew to refer to idols. It's a real danger in our thinking to assume that because we're not bowing down to some statue, that we are therefore not in danger of idolatry. The world we are to hate is the entire system of satanic influence as it operates its cancerous effects through the various worldly systems and instruments of our culture. These instruments are naturally evolved systems built from human ingenuity and creativity, yet strangely energized and controlled by demonic supernatural intelligence. The groupthink that seems to have no heart and that ultimately seeks to devour life rather than enhance and protect it is what we're talking about. These are what Paul refers to so often as principalities and powers. They can be seen in all human governments to some degree or other, even the best governments. They can be seen in super business complexes, industries, educational systems, entertainment, journalism. It takes a heart committed to reality to be able to discern the presence of lying vanities because for the most part, lying vanities are the whole warp and woof of the entire culture we live in. You might say it would take an extra discerning fish to understand what water is. Most fish, I don't think, are not quite aware of water. They're just in it. So in the same way that fish are in water and therefore are oblivious to, to it, they float around in it, we float around in the culture that we live in, and unless we willfully seek the face of, of God, unless we seriously try to um, make ourselves available to Him for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him to open our eyes and strengthen our hearts so that we don't live in the deception of our culture, we'll be just a, flea, a fish floating around in the sewer. Um, the world we are to hate is the system that we live in, and we have to live in it but not be of it. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would be in it but not of it. And he prayed that we would be in it for its sake. You are the light of the world. 
as long as you're in the world. He said, you are the salt of the earth. So Jesus is expecting us to occupy until he comes and yet not be seduced by the system that we are occupying. And so John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You're to learn to walk in the power of the greater one who lives in you. But you know, it's the group think that is so heartless and becomes so devilish. Uh, it has no heart and ultimately, as I said a while ago, seeks to destroy rather than protect, seeks to hate rather than love, seeks to devour rather than to uh, sacrifice itself. Uh, this is true on the human system level, but it's energized by principalities and powers. Now, between John's statement that the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one in John 5.19 and his statement that we are to keep ourselves from idols. He also says in 1 John 5, verse 20, the Son of God has come and given us an understanding so that we might know what is real. The word true, which is most commonly translated here, is also for the word real. So the only way to overcome lying vanities, which are empty lies, is to be in touch with the real. We have the Son of God has come to give us an understanding so we can know what is real and more more specifically know who is real. <clears throat> and instead of being fish floating around in sewer water, we are in Christ. We're not in the water of the sewer. We are in the living water of Christ. We are in what is real in his Son Jesus Christ. This one, John says, is the real God and eternal life. And then he closes that verse again with a statement I've already repeated three times. Keep yourselves from idols. John is juxtaposing verse 20 with verse 21. Keep yourselves from idols. How do you keep yourselves from idols? By making sure you respond to the understanding that the Son of God gives about what is real and what is not real. Um, do we take this seriously? I know most people who listen to Nightlight take it very seriously. I never have to wonder about how seriously you take uh, these exhortations. And yet, I'm not telling you things you don't know. I'm telling you things you do know in order to keep us awake. Because I'll tell you something, folks, and I've confessed this to you many times. Um, the guys like myself and the girls that are out there on the on the battlefield of the front line watching the flow of culture, we can be easily picked off by the enemy because we are so close to the front lines of what's going on in the culture. So I never take it for granted that because I'm awake and watchful, I'm immune uh, to the errors of the enemy. I'm more susceptible, not less. And so uh, what I say to you, I say to myself, stay awake. Uh, and I'll have more to say about that as we progress. We're all directly affected by every one of these systems that I listed. And, and then there's this one system that I didn't mention that is I left out of the list on purpose because I wanted to focus on it separately. And that is uh, the, the chief 
spirit system of darkness that the enemy uses, which is religion. The evil systems of the world are all parasites off of a God-ordained good. Business is good. Medicine is good. But the marriage of big business with big pharmaceutical marketing uh, plans makes for a hellish dynamo where the true welfare of the patient is often sacrificed for the bottom line. Doctors finding themselves pressed by salespersons to push drugs for the sake of sales where dangerous drugs are protected uh, because their producers have good lobbying engines in the government. So it uh, doesn't matter what the truth of the scientific uh, evidence may be for the danger of such a drug. It's, it's pushed until it makes millions, and then uh, they go through the, the song and dance of withdrawing the drug from uh, the market uh, and making a pretense of trying to protect the, uh, the populace from it so forth. Uh, so the government, which should be protecting, joins with the drug companies, which should be providing in order for the doctors to have the means to heal. Yet we all know the horror stories in which protection became abuse, provision became robbery, and healing became murder. Uh, the broken human elements involved with these systems cannot explain the degree of power for evil that operates in such systems. And I'm not saying this against any person who is trying to make a decent living by working for a pharmaceutical company or any person trying to bring help and healing through, uh, through medical uh, practice. I've got many, many doctors who, who are friends of mine who, who have told me these things privately. What they've gone through in the privacy of their offices from pressures, high pressures from uh, drug companies to uh, push uh, a drug just for the sake of sales rather than for the sake of good science or good medicine. For heaven's sakes, I'm not saying anything anybody can't know just by living in the sewer water. And that's just one example of many, many. Here you have uh, government, you have pharmaceuticals, and you have the medical system. All of them may be peopled by good people, people who have good intentions. How many politicians have told me, I went into politics with all best intentions, and when I got in, something took me over. Something began to pull on me, and I took every bit of energy I had just to stay uh, sane. Uh, whatever energy I thought I was going to be able to use to serve the people became energy I had to use to protect myself from, from uh, collapsing morally. There's powers behind these powers. And religion is the darkest form of this dynamic. One person feeling the need to abstain from idols may be seduced by a certain kind of religious spirit uh, to forsake all sense of duty to mankind and to hide away from the needs of the people around him, all in the name of holiness. Yet James 1.27 says, uh, true religion and undefiled uh, doesn't just keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's the last half of the verse. But James closes that escapist door and nails it shut when he explains that true religion and undefiled is first a proactive thing and second a self-protective thing. Keep yourselves from idols uh, doesn't mean hide from the world and don't be involved in the battle. James says True religion and undefiled is to first care for the widow and the orphan, those who are most victimized by the world system. 
and to then, at the same time, keep yourself unspotted from the world. We're to go in and fight uh, the dragon without being bitten by the dragon. So the first thing we need to do to escape idols is to be in union with the real so that we're not seduced by the faults, the lying vanities. We should operate in a level of discernment that keeps us from falling into idolatrous traps. The worldly neon light flashing in our eyes is easily recognized and resisted by most believers. It's the more subtle ones, the more disguised ones, the ones that even try to pass themselves off as something good that are more treacherous. Politics, I guess, is a great example. Those on the left end of the political spectrum seem to be able to easily embrace candidates that claim to be for the poor, so-called. So in the name of Christian charity, they will support a party that murders babies, destroys marriage, upholds the hands of pornographers and organized criminals and dictators and misogynistic Islamic monsters, all in the name of being, quote, for the poor. The deception on the right is even worse. Those who think God is only concerned with the moral issues they themselves are concerned with often support those claiming to be tough on crime, for instance, with no concern whatsoever that many on death row are there only because they were the wrong color or they lacked the financial means to to defend themselves against the system. These often live on the very border of nationalistic idolatry acting as if their country, right or wrong, is a valid system. Forgetting that God will judge all nations for their evil. These ignore the fact, for instance, that the United States is the chief exporter of filth in the world and holds the third world in economic bondage in order to further our own interests. It is a criminal thing against uh, national loyalty to burn the American flag, I think people that burn the flag should go to jail. It's not a freedom of expression. It's an act of treason. But uh, at the same time, it's an act of blasphemy to raise the American flag and put it on the equal level with the cross. It's right to honor our fallen dead as heroes on the human level But it's blasphemous to equate the shedding of their blood on battlefields to protect our natural freedom with the shedding of Christ's blood for our eternal freedom. The idolatry of the left is manifestly obvious. So I need not spend any time on that. We all know it. The reason I said that it's the idolatry on the right that is more dangerous, it's not because when measuring one against the other, right Right, uh, uh, right-wing idolatry is more evil or pernicious. It is that it is more easily disguised and therefore more seductive. I believe there's many a person out there who goes to church and waves their Bible in one hand and waves the American flag in the other, and they truly think that they are doing God a service by exalting American politics right along with the, the Word of God by exalting the flag right alongside the cross, by exalting the Constitution right along Scripture. Now, I'm certainly a constitutionalist, and I'm certainly 
grateful for my country, and I believe that it's right to stand for the Constitution and for all things related to what it has produced for us. But I've never been seduced into believing that the American Constitution is a divine document with the authority of Scripture. Nor do I believe that capitalism is uh, free from from, uh, the cankers of worldly seduction, for heaven's sakes. Like one friend of mine said years ago, a professor of economics, he said, the difference between capitalism and communism is uh, that after the C, they're spelled differently. He said, other than that, they end up producing the same kind of fruit if God is not kept in his proper authority over the systems. That's too much to try to talk about here, but I'll tell you, we will talk about it more because it's impossible to deal with idolatry without dealing with money. And uh, in the sessions to come, we will be showing the relationship between idolatry and money and worldly entertainment and security. But for now, uh, let me just say, many are oblivious to the dangers that I'm talking about here. And uh, God and country is only a valid point of celebration as long as those who wave the flag understand that it is God over the country, not God alongside the country. Idolatry is an ever-present danger because we are easily seduced. Our only protection is humility before a holy God. Now, Paul doesn't mince words about this in uh, writing to the Corinthians. If you'll look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we've, we've mentioned this in previous studies, but I want to go into a little bit more detail here because my point in this study together is to awaken us to the fact that John's exhortation to, quote, keep yourselves away from idols was because there are dangers out there. You know, I tell my children to stay out of the street, it's because they can get killed. And when John says to to watch out for idols, it's not an idle threat to warn them of the dangers of what could happen if they don't obey that. Now, Paul's statement here in 1 Corinthians 10 is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time because it's so relevant to what we're what I'm trying to get across. Paul doesn't give them some false sense of security that is only found in legalities. I don't you know please I'm not trying to be controversial on for controversy's sake. I thank God for justification by faith. I thank God for Paul's delineation of that doctrine in the book of Romans. But if we're going to be faithful exegetes of Scripture, we're going to have to stop doing what we rebuke other people for doing, and that is just landing on one subject and excluding all other counterbalancing Scriptures so that we can exalt our particular definition of that subject. And... uh, you know, I don't I don't get in controversies, I try not to, with people over once saved, always saved, and eternal security and things of that nature. Because in every system, whether you come from a system that believes you can, quote, lose your salvation, or you come from a system that believes that the believer is eternally secure, uh, 
anybody, whether they're from one of those groups or another of those groups, has to bow to certain scriptures that seem not interested to confirm doctrinal positions on eternal security. They're much more interested in exhorting real people to stay away from real sin that can really destroy you. So with that in mind, Paul's writing to the Corinthians here in chapter 10, and I'm reading from the Kassira translation. Heinz Kassira was a great Jewish believer who uh, was also a highly respected Greek authority. In his translation, I just want to read from it because it's so clear. He says, My brothers, there are certain matters of which you ought to remind yourselves. Remember what I said a while ago? I'm not trying to teach you something you don't know, but I want to remind you. Our forefathers all found shelter under the pillar of the cloud. Isn't it interesting as an aside here, but it's interesting that Paul refers to the ancient Hebrews as the forefathers of the Corinthian Greek pagans who now have come to Christ. And as far as Paul is concerned, they are uh, the, the offspring of Abraham. Our forefathers all found shelter under the pillar of the cloud. All of them passed safely through the sea. All alike were, by virtue of the cloud and the sea, baptized into fellowship with Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for it was from a supernatural rock they all drank from. Uh, and that rock was Christ. But for all that, God was not pleased with most of them. As Scripture has said, they were overthrown in the desert. Now, these things came about as pointers to the future, to serve as warning examples. We were not to set our hearts as they set their hearts on things which are evil. And do not turn into idolaters as some of them did. Paul's saying, listen, you can all be idolaters. Now, now, with all due respect, folks, to those who want to just cling to the justification position, of Scripture. What are you going to do with this? I've heard some teachers actually say, well, it, he's not saying this as a real warning. He's just saying, if you weren't believers, this is what you'd... That's, that's turning language on its head. The Corinthians were in real danger of falling into idolatry and the ramifications of what that would produce for them. So he goes on to say here, do not turn into idolaters as some of them did. As it stands written in scripture, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to, to party. Neither must we commit fornication as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Neither must we put the Lord to the test as some of them put the Lord to the test and were destroyed by serpents. Now this next verse, you know, I, I'm not I'm not out fornicating and and uh, I'm not out, you know, putting God to the test. But this next verse troubles me about me. Neither must we grumble, as some of them gave way to grumbling, and perished at the hands of the destroying angel. Anyway, I won't comment on that any more than that. Now these things kept happening to them as pointers to the future, by way of serving as a warning. Folks, it is insipid to say that a warning has no real meaning as a warning. 
I just long for the day when we don't teach Scripture according to our denominational background dictates, and we just want to speak the truth in love to people in order for them to be safe and, and, and walk in the Spirit and obtain their full inheritance in Christ. I'll tell you, some of you preachers out there, that if you're preaching the truth because you love God and love the truth and love your people, God will take care of whatever political ramifications it may cost you for speaking the truth. But if you are pleasing men and spouting out denominational uh, concepts that don't line up with Scripture because that's the way you've always heard it taught and that's the way we've always done it, you are an idolater. That's the religious idolatry that I was talking about. Now, these things kept happening to them as pointers for the future by way of serving as a warning. And they were put on record to be an admonition for us. Who's us? Believers in Jesus. He's saying the warning that they received is the warning given for us also so we don't fall into the same trap. Just clinging to legal position based on justification by faith is not enough for Paul who wrote Romans. Excuse me for getting excited. So then, let him who thinks that he stands firm take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has ever taken anyone except that which is common to the lot of all men. No, God is true to his word, and so he will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able to endure, but will provide, uh, along with the temptation, the way to escape it, so that you may be able to bear up under it. And so, my dear brothers, in consideration of all this, it is your duty to keep far away from the worship of idols. I'm addressing myself to you as men of good sense. Bring your own judgment to bear on what I'm saying. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a sharing of the blood of Christ? The loaf of bread which we break, is it not a sharing of the body of Christ? See, seeing then that we, uh, many as we are, are but one loaf, one body, all of us partaking of the same loaf. Don't you see that we're, we're all one body? Or consider the case of Israel in the natural sense of the word. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What then do I mean to assert, that a thing sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol itself is anything? No, of course not. The idols of the pagans are just mere objects. They have no meaning either way. But we understand that they are offering not to the idols, but to the demons behind the idols. And I would not have you become partakers with demons." You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or, or do you want to provoke the Lord to jealousy the way Israel did when they worshipped the golden calf? That's what he's saying here. Now, to bring this to some closure, ultimately what Paul is addressing is two things, I believe. The participation of, of demonic things brings the presence of the demonic. And though a believer who is not willfully participating in demonic things, but he's just buying food in the market, not knowing whether the food was sacrificed to demons or not, in such a case, 
a believer is not under any danger of being demonized just by touching the fruit because greater is he that's in the believer than he that's in the world. In the same way, we're not in danger of of uh, bringing the demonic into our home or into our life or into our world uh, by just living our life innocently, not knowing. But Paul is saying, if you do know, if you've been informed, that changes the dynamic to the degree that it, it has to do with your heart. And ultimately, what we're talking about here is what is going on in your heart. What's going on in your heart toward God? And then what's going on in your heart toward the people around you, your neighbor, your brother, your sister, or the unbeliever who is encountering you? So ultimately, in a way that maybe I I need to explain more in further detail, sessions on this love is the opposite of idolatry idolatry is the opposite of love to be involved in idolatry is not just a a rule you've broken that makes God want to punish you that's not the issue at all the issue is what are you becoming Whose likeness are you taking on and manifesting more and more? We become what we worship. We become like what we worship. When you get into Romans chapter 1, that gets more more pronouncedly demonstrated in that text if you want to take some time to read that on your own. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to stay away from idols because if their heart is set on loving the world, the presence of the spirits of the world will come and respond to that worship. At the same time, that could also endanger the witness and therefore the eternal destiny of those around them. So it's a matter ultimately of love. Do you love God? And do you love your neighbor? Now, right now we're, we're in the middle of a so-called culture war that has been escalating now for 30 plus years, 40 years. And I see in this culture war uh, a tendency of, of many of us believers to simply put it in moral issues. Uh, you, you don't, you know, they like to do so, so and so, and we don't do that because we're Christians. They participate in certain, certain behaviors, and we don't participate in that because we're Christians. And the subtle danger of that, uh, is maybe not so subtle, is that it ends up just being a, an issue of our superior morality over their inferior immorality. There's no love in that. Uh, we could actually be manifesting a certain kind of Christian idolatry by taking that simplistic stance. We don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do, and people that do that kind of thing, we, we don't want anything to do with them. And we think we have scripture to support that kind of uh, prideful c- condemnation of people. That's not what Paul's talk- talking about here at all. He's talking about the focus of the heart 
in the Corinthian believers that so loved the, the demonic worship of the world that they wanted to keep that and still call themselves believers. And that was because they were devoid of a real love for the real God, and they were devoid of a real love for the people around them. And so he's talking about how Israel died in the desert, not because God saw they broke a rule and stomped on them like ants uh, under his shoe, but because they had chosen a route that automatically took them away from God and away from life. Notice the way Paul words this in First Corinthians 10. He says, don't set your hearts on things that are evil and thus become idolaters. See, this is a progressive matter of the heart, which is what is always going on when Paul or anybody else in Scripture is talking about the danger of idolatry. John, his letter is full of love talking about the love of God, talking about our love for one another. The whole letter is about love, and so he closes it with this admonition, keep yourselves away from idols. Why? Because the the, the idols are the opposite of love. Opposite of love for God, opposite of love for people. So the idolatry in our hearts can be recognized by whatever is drawing us away from loving God, and whatever causes us not to love people. Jesus meant what he said when he said the whole of the law is completed in two things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself.